0: In the 19th century, a project of unparalleled scope was undertaken that revolutionized the Jewish world, namely the codification of halacha. Tonight, we're going to look back at a time when our nation was at a crossroads. We were facing severe, grave threats to Jewish continuity, the way ahead was uncertain. The story goes back essentially to the existence of our nation. Halacha is how to live as a Jew. The Torah is the instructions of God, and the instructions given to the Jewish people. And there's a specific way that we are supposed to behave, and that's called halacha. Halacha is what is the correct way to fulfill the mitzvot, what's allowed, and what's forbidden. What's kosher and what's unkosher? Who's liable? Who's innocent? And every law, the practical application of that law is known as halacha. Now, this was part of the oral Torah. As we know, the Torah was given in two formats. One of them was oral and one of them was written. Written Torah is the five books of Moshe. And we know over the course of history, we've spoken about it in the past, the oral Torah was written over time. Uh, Beginning with Moshe, it was transmitted orally. We had the Sanhedrin, which is a body that was founded by Moshe, whose role was to ensure that the oral Torah is perpetuated accurately. And from generation to generation, that's how it was done. Uh, Circumstances mandated that the oral Torah be committed to writing. Now, this is a problem because the Oral Torah is called Oral Torah for a reason. It's not supposed to be written. And therefore, when it was written out of necessity, only the bare minimum that was needed was written. So that's why we see over history, the Mishnah, which is one part of Oral Torah, the part that contains just the laws, the abstract, rigid laws, without any detail, well, that was written first. And that's only a part of the Oral Torah. The rest of the Oral Torah was maintained orally. 300 years later, after the Mishnah was written, it became necessary to write down the Gemara, the Talmud. The Talmud is much more than just the laws. It's the explication of the Mishnah. It's the explanations. It's the sources tracing the Oral Torah back to the written Torah because everything that's in the Oral Torah has to have its roots in the written Torah. The Talmud contains also examples and exceptions of any given law and various applications of that law. Now, within the Talmud itself, you can find everything. You find, actually, halacha. If you studied the entire corpus of the Talmud with incredible commitment and determination to find out what the actual halacha is, you'll find it. But the decision was made in the writing of the Talmud to not parse out halacha in a separate way. It means the only way to access the halacha from the Talmud is by studying it all with incredible commitment. But there was never an effort made to draw out and glean the halacha and organize it in a way that someone could just study the halacha. And again, the reason for that is the same as the reason behind writing just the Mishnah. And that is is that the architects of the Talmud, they determined to mitigate the amount of oral Torah that they're going to commit to writing. And therefore, the Halakha, it itself was not written down on its own, it was deduced from the Talmud. And then we know after the Talmud was written, there's the era known as the Gaonim. Their role was primarily to study the Talmud and to teach the Talmud and to supplement the understanding of the Talmud with responsa. But there was not really a comprehensive effort to begin the next stage of unpacking of the oral Torah and writing down the halacha. In the era that came after the Go'onim, known as the Rishonim, the first ones, essentially spanning from the year 1000 to the year 1500, then we see a boom of new kinds of Torah literature, and for our purposes, specifically literature of codified works of halacha, together with comprehensive commentaries on the Talmud. In the time of the Gaonim, they didn't feel like it was necessary to write down halacha because everyone could study the Talmud and determine halacha. and if you didn't know halacha, you would write to the Gaonim and ask them your question, and they'd respond and give you the answer. The era of the Roshonim is marked by a newfound emphasis to write stand-alone works of halacha deduced from the Talmud, and to write commentaries that explain the Talmud. But what's interesting about this era is that in the times of the Talmud and the Mishnah, it was a collaborative effort of the entire body of the scholars of Israel working together to write the authoritative Mishnah. There's only one Mishnah. Rabbi Judah the Prince wrote the only Mishnah. In a weird way, you could argue that the Talmud was written twice. It was written the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. But really, there was only one Talmud. Only the Babylonian Talmud was accepted by all of Israel as being the final authoritative work of Talmud. And during the time of the Rishonim, that great era of a 500 years of giants of Torah, names and people that we've spoken about in the past, there wasn't this collaborative effort where everyone got together and say, okay, let us write the comprehensive, authoritative book of halacha. And over the course of this 500 years, you have many different commentaries in the Talmud. You have Rebbein Rgerashim, Rebbein Hanan, of course, the greatest of them, Rashi. Uh, that's not necessarily a work of halacha, because that's a way of explaining the Talmudic text how to study the Talmud, but not necessarily how to draw from the Talmud, the halacha. You have another kind of writing, chidushim on the Talmud, which is new insights and analysis of the Talmud. And notably, we spoke about the Tosafos, the Ramban, Rashba, Ritva, amongst many others who did that. In this this, this too was directed at explaining the Talmud and contrasting one Talmud with the other Talmud, but it wasn't necessarily dedicated solely on books of Halacha. And of course, the Rishonim also continued the tradition of the Gaonim of Rai Responsa, and that, the body of response of the Rishonim, is staggeringly voluminous. But most significant for our discussion is the efforts made during this time period, to write comprehensive and isolated works of halacha, to draw out from the Talmud, to find the halacha amongst the sea of Talmud, and to write a book of just that. Rabbi al Rabbi Yitzhak Alfasi, one of the earliest of the Sephardic him he wrote his halacha that is found in the back of every Talmud. Of course, he spoke at great length regarding the Rambam, and he went even further. He abandoned the Talmud entirely, or the format of the Talmud entirely. And he wrote his own book of Allah with his own system, 14 books organized by him, not a long pages of the Talmud. And he even omitted sources. We don't have the sources where he got his laws from the Talmud, but he writes that this is all from the Talmud. And indeed today, one of the great joys of, studying the Rambam is trying to retrace his steps how did he get from said Talmud to this conclusion and there were others there was the Rosh the Or will was speaking a little bit the Mordechai but this really shows the effort and the recognition of this era of Torah giants that there was a need to write down halacha. It's no longer to be maintained so to speak in the oral tradition now it's time for it to be written in a portable, transmittable, written way. And the Rambam, of course, in his introduction to his work, he gives a history of oral Torah and a history of Halacha, and he frames the problem and explains why his book has to be written. And he writes, You take the two Talmuds, along with the Tosefta, Sifra, Sifri, and tose- and, and other associated writings, and you find from them what's forbidden, what's permitted, what's clean, what's unclean, what's liable, what's exempt, what you can use, what you cannot use, halacha. And you find it in the Talmud, and it's all from the unbroken oral tradition from Moshe at Sinai. It's all there. But the problem is that in order to actually draw out the halacha, you have to be an expert, you have to have time, and you have to peace of mind on your hands. And the realm highlights every time the Oral Torah was written, or a stage, an unpacking of the Oral Torah was committed to writing, it was based out of necessity. And he writes The people of Israel scattered throughout the nations, and they reached the most remote parts of the world, and there was armed struggle, and those public ways became clogged with armies, study of Torah declined. Whereas previously it was possible to perpetuate Torah, you'd have a teacher, and you have committed students. And they spend years and decades studying. And the transmission of oral Torah would be completed teacher to student, parent to child. But now, says the Rambam, there were only few individuals, the remnant of the Jewish people who study Torah and the Talmud in a way that enables them to draw at halacha, and then he talks about modern times, or in his times. In our time, severe troubles come one after another. All are in distress. The Rambam himself, he lived a very chaotic life, at least at the beginning, because his family had to flee. And such conditions are not suitable for transmission of oral Torah teacher to student. Continues the Rambam. The understanding of our necessary Man is hidden the commentaries, the responses, the questions, and all the sudden laws of the Gaonim, which had once seemed clear, have in our times become hard to understand. So that only a few people properly understand them. And one hardly needs to mention the Talmud itself, Babylonian Talmud, Jerusalem Talmud, Sefra Sefrit, Osefotot, which all require a broad mind, a wise soul, and considerable time before one can correctly know from them the Halacha. What the Rambam is essentially saying here is that there is a need for a new writing of the oral Torah. The Mishnah, the laws, was written. The Talmud, the explanation of the laws, was written. In it is halakha, but it's not codified halakha. It's not drawn out. The emphasis of the Talmud is not to reach the halakha. Yes, it does reach the halakha, but it's not highlighted. The Rambam says, I'm going to do it. For this reason, I, Moshe, the son of Rabbi Maimon, the Sephardi, found that the current situation is unbearable. And so, relying on the Almighty, I studied intently all these books to determine from all these works, halacha regarding what is permitted, what is forbidden, what's clean, what's unclean, and all the rules of the Torah. Everything in clear language so that the whole oral law, laws, Mishnah, Rationale for the laws, sources for the laws, Talmud, and the practical halacha would become thoroughly known to all, without bringing problems and solutions or differences of view. Just the bottom line, clear, convincing, correct statements, in accordance with the law drawn from all these works and commentaries that have appeared since the writing of the Mishnah. And the Rambam places his book in history. What's the objective of the book? This is so that all the rules should be accessible to the small and to the great. Every commandment, all the rules, all the legislation, everything, in short, so that a person should need no other work in the world, in halacha, but that this work will collect the entire oral Torah, including the positive Mitzvos, the customs, the negative mitzvos since the time of Moshe, until the writing of the Talmud, as interpreted by the Gaonim. Thus, I have called this work Mishnah Torah, the complete restatement of Oral Torah, so that a person reads the written Torah, the five to Moshe, and then reads this work, and you know from it the entire oral law without needing to read any other book between them. What the Rambam is telling us, he says, I'm going to make oral law accessible. Oral law is not accessible now. It is, theoretically, but in practice, it's just not. I'm going to write the book that explains it all. You'll find everything. The laws, the Mishnah, the Talmud, and the crown jewel of oral Torah, Halacha. Now, the Rambam himself, he still maintained an uninterrupted tradition back to the Gonim. He still claimed... That his father, who was his primary teacher, and his teacher, the Rimagash, whose teacher was the Rif, Rabbi El Fassi, whose teacher was back to the Gaonim, whose teacher was, whose teacher was, whose teacher was, all the way back to Moshe. But it was clear that this era, where there can still be uninterrupted tradition, is coming to an end. And the Rambam, he was in the Sephardic world. In the Ashkenazic world, that was deteriorating even faster. We spoke about in the past how the Crusades and all the other persecutions, if you remember the burning of the Talmud in Paris in 1244, essentially eliminated French Jewry. Many fled, uh, most to Germany, other places. Hence the Ashkenazic world is called Ashkenazim, which means German, or Germanic, and not uh, Tzarfatim, which is French. We used to be called Tsarfatim. now we're the Ashkenazim. So the Jews are fleeing, and their leader is Rabbi Yitzhak Moshe, and he's determined to try to rebuild a broken people, a people ravaged by crusade and persecution. And he ends up in Vienna, and he writes this book, which becomes a pivotal book of halacha called the Orzarua. And the objective of this book is to take all the teachings of the preceding Ashkenazi giants and to write it all in one book, like the Rambam before him in the Sephardic world, a one volume that contains everything. And this essentially reflects the challenges of the time. How do you perpetuate Torah? How do you perpetuate halacha under these conditions never seen before by our nation, tremendously challenging and chaotic living conditions it's not suitable. Well, what do you do? You have to create a portable version that can be studied by people on their own, on their own time, and they can know the halacha from the book, not in the way that would be ideal to learn it from a teacher. Now his student, the student of the Orzarua who became the next leader of Ashkenazic Jewry, also had a very chaotic life. And his name was Rabbi Meir ben Baruch, known as the Maharam Mirottenberger, Maharam Rabbi Meir of Rothenburg. He helped edit the Tosfos, which was one of the largest bodies of Ashkenazic oral Torah tradition. And he was the unchallenged leader of Ashkenazic Jewry. We have about 3,000 legal responsas written by him, because all Jews, all European Jews, all addressed their questions to him. Now, at the time, the Jews of Germany were considered servants of the Royal Chamber. They were punitively taxed. They weren't allowed to leave. In 1285, the Maharam of Rothenberg decides to flee Europe to move to Israel. This was illegal, especially because he had planned to bring a whole swath of Jews with him. As he's traveling along the way, he's recognized by a Jewish apostate in Italy, and he rats him out, and he's dragged back to Germany. He's jailed in the Isisheim castle and held for ransom. So you can imagine think about what kind of Jewish life it is when the greatest Jew of his time is kidnapped and held hostage for ransom. And the king, Rudolf of Habsburg, demands an astonishing sum of 30,000 marks for his release. The community raises the money, and they're about to pay off to ransom their leader, and he doesn't let it go through. And he refuses, based upon the Mishnah, we do not redeem the, the, the captives more than they are worth on the open market. To fix the world. There's a concern. If you kidnap one rabbi today and you're able to raise a huge amount of money for his release, well, that's going to encourage further exploitations. The next rabbi will be kidnapped tomorrow. So he says, no, no, no. Whatever my market price is for me as a slave, that's what you pay, not a shekel more. So he's incarcerated. In the last seven years of his life, he's held up in prison. Now, remarkably, despite being incarcerated, he was allowed to have visitors and write responsa and run his yeshiva. We have many responsa today that he signs with his signature, and it writes, signing it from prison. After seven years, he dies in prison. And they open his will, and his will says, don't ransom my body. And for 14 years, his body languished in prison, until finally, a wealthy Jew, Alexander Wimphen, ransomed him, and as thanks for ransoming the body of the great leader of Ashnazic Jewry, he was buried next to him in the Jewish cemetery of worms. But this, again, shows A, the commitment that Ashkenazic leaders had to try to rebuild the tattered community after the Crusades, and additionally, how the harsh conditions continued even afterwards. Under such living conditions, it's very difficult to try to perpetuate oral Torah to legions of students. Now the Maharam's prime disciple, one of the shining stars of this era, is Rabbi Asher ben Yechil, known as the Rush. You open at the back of any Talmud, you'll find his halachic commentary in the Talmud. Now he's not as innovative as the Rambam, he doesn't depart from the structure of the Talmud, But again we see another effort made to try to codify halacha in this era. Now he was traveling for the benefit of his community and he ended up in Spain and he was offered while visiting Toledo a rabbinic position. This is miles and miles away from where his teacher was imprisoned and he said, you know what? I'm going to accept it. So you have this interesting dynamic where the Ashkenazic leader of his time becomes the rabbi over the Sephardic community in Spain now he brought with him his son another one of the great titans of the era Rabbi Yaakov ben Rabbi Asher who himself wrote another magisterial and innovative book of halacha known as the Tur or the Arba Turim now he departs from the Talmud and he, just starts, he starts writing it from scratch and he organizes it anew his father wrote it alongside the Talmud. The Rambam wrote it with his 14 books and his own order, which is based upon conceptual order. The Rambam begins with, what are the foundations of Torah? you got to believe in God, you have to have faith. And he talks about um, believing in prophecy and Kiddush Hashem and uh, the laws of Torah and the laws of repentance and free will. All the theological important, so to speak, elements of Jewish faith are addressed first. And so he continues. The Tour, the son of the Rosh, Rabbi Yaakov ben Rabbi Asher, he devised a new system. He's going to start it off in chronological order of the Jewish day. So what's the first thing you do? You wake up in the morning. Well, okay, what do you do then? You wash your hands. Let's start with that. You go to pray. Let's continue with that. You put a tefillin. And he does that law in order, first the Jewish day, then the Jewish week, and then the Jewish year, and broken down to four sections Arachayim, Yoridei, Evan, Ezra, and Choshen, Mishpat. And it's critical for our story because when the Shulchan Aruch is going to be written, it's going to be based upon the tour. Now, Ashton has a Jewry with these four great leaders the Arzurua, the Marami Rottenberg, the Rush, and the tour they rebuilt their ranks thanks to these giants. But they're still living under very oppressive conditions. Now, the Sephardic world is not going to fare much better for that much longer. In the 13th century, the Christian Reconquista of Spain is going to unleash untold terror on the Sephardic Jews living there. Their golden age is rapidly waning. For all intents and purposes, the notion of continued study from rabbi to student, from parent to child, with sufficient time, peace of mind, tranquility to transmit all of Torah, that's going extinct. You have individuals that are doing it, sure. But the notion that oral Torah can perpetuate with halacha being unwritten, that everyone was coming to realize is not tenable. But this era at least the leaders of this era, they still had uninterrupted tradition. However, with the end of the Rishonik era came the end of the uninterrupted tradition, and hence the problem that is the subject of our talk tonight, how do we continue the knowledge of oral Torah in our nation when we don't have the halacha written down in a formalized, codified way? And we no longer have the tradition to ensure that it is maintained on a national level. Now, thankfully, the Rishonim, like the Rambam, they saw it coming, so they wrote and they wrote their halacha, and they wrote the commentaries, and they wrote their explanations, and they wrote the chiddushim, and they wrote their response, and they wrote and, wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. But ironically, you could argue that they wrote too much, because we had an intricate Talmud. In it, you found. The halacha, and that took up a whole bookshelf. And you know what? Every 13 year old boy who becomes bar mitzvah and needs to know how to live as a Jew. And what do you do? You got to study the whole Talmud before you become bar mitzvah? That's not reasonable for most people. So they scrapped the bookshelf. They didn't scrap the bookshelf, but they realized that the bookshelf of the Talmud is too complex to teach halacha. But they replaced it, not with a bookshelf, not with a bookcase, but with a whole library of Roshonic halachic literature of all types. You're back to score one. Paradoxically now, after the era of the Roshonim, there's too much options, too many options of codified halacha. How do you determine which one to follow? Do you choose just one of them? Now for some, the answer was yes. The Yemenite Jews, for example, they follow the Rambam in every one of his rulings. He, because of his efforts to save the Yemenite Jewish community from their existential problems, they accepted him as the final word of their halacha. What about everyone else? It was a grave problem. In the 16th century, after the era of the Rishonim came to an end, several Pivotal characters in Jewish history stepped up and forever changed the landscape of Jewish living. The greatest of them is Rabbi Yosef Cairo. He was born in Spain in 1488, and as a young child, he's three years old, he's fleeing with his family, along with hundreds of thousands of Jews during the expulsion of Jews in 1492. They leave Spain their ancestral homeland for millenn- for centuries. And they stop along several places along the way. They end up in Turkey for a little bit. They spend some time in Greece and Italy. Ultimately, they settle in Sfat in northern Israel. And he's going to go on to become one of the most significant and transformative Jews of his time. And he's going to be the catalyst for the next great development of Torah and the next codification of oral Torah. When describing this persona, no superlatives will suffice to describe his impact. He was a genius and a scholar and a tzaddik of astounding proportions. Today we're going to focus not so much on his personal character, but the literary and halakhic works that he wrote Which were unmatched in their influence, he set out on this quest to codify halacha. And in his introduction to his magnum opus Bet Yosef, he outlines the need to codify and standardize halacha. And he sets out to write the definitive book, which includes all the applicable laws, all the explanations, everything sourced from the Talmud, all the disagreements, all the discussions, all the debates all the commentaries, all the positions to lay out the land and to determine halacha. And he writes in his introduction that in order to avoid unnecessary duplication, he chose to base his work on the work of a predecessor. So who does he choose? Well, initially he chooses the greatest halakha book of them all, the Rambam. And he begins writing a commentary on that. Ultimately, he changes his mind because the Rambam only offers his conclusions. The Rambam doesn't source his positions in the Talmud. It doesn't tell us about the existence of other positions. And he even notes that you open up one book of Halakha and you see an authoritative stance and you assume that no one else disagrees. And the truth is, is that there are... Mountains, as he called, as as they're called, giants of Torah who disagree, and that's the problem. And the Rambam gives only one angle, only his angle, only his conclusion. And he realizes the Rambam, the book of the Mishnah Torah, is not a good candidate to write his book upon because of the unique structure of the Rambam and the fact that he uh, very much includes only his position and nobody else's. Now, interestingly, that first attempt is not scrapped. He ends up writing the Kesef Mishnah. He takes this work on the Rambam and writes a comprehensive commentary on the Rambam. And indeed, if Rabbi Yosef Cairo's only work was the Kesef Mishnah, his position as a giant of Torah would have been cemented. And in this book, Kesef Mishnah, he, as if you recall, the Rambam was written without any sources. The Mishnah Torah was written without any sources. And he provides all the sources. And then he provides explanation. And then he responds to the various challenges on the Rambam. Primarily, of course, the critiques of the Raivad. And there's a little bit of a play in words here. Mishnah Torah means the repetition or doubling of Torah. Kesef Mishneh means the doubling of your money. And that refers to an episode in Genesis when Joseph places the money back in the satchels of his brothers and they come back, they bring Kesef Mishneh, a double money. And of course, Rabbi Yosef Cairo is invoking his name, Yosef, in that title. This comprehensive commentary on the Rambam is included in the margins of all subsequent editions of Mishnah Torah. But this was not going to be the book he uses as a baseline for his work on Halacha. Ultimately, he chooses the Tur, the Arbat Turim, the fourth Turim of Rabbi Yaakov, the son of Rabbi Asher. As a baseline for his work, because it incorporates many other opinions. This is interesting because the tour at the time was the authoritative book of halacha for Ashkenazi Jewry. It's already been in existence for hundreds of years, and its stature is unquestioned. And Rabbi Yosef Kairos ran a commentary on that. And one would argue that this is maybe the only time in history when a commentary on a work has even a greater impact than the work is based upon. His commentary on the tour, the Bet Yosef, is going to outshine. The tour itself, and he writes what his plan is. First, he's going to source every law that the tour brings from the Mishnah, the Bryce, the Sefta, Babylonian, Jerusalem Talmud. Zephra, for us, a free Where's it from? And then he's going to say, well, is it universally agreed upon? Is it a subject of Mechlokus? Well, if there is a Mechlokus, if there is a disagreement, what are the various opinions? And if the tour himself brings opinions, explain those. If he omits opinions, explain those. If there's any questions or argumentation he'll offer his analysis and his answers if none others are presented. If others are presented, he'll bring those. And if there are laws that are not brought down by the tour, he'll bring them as well and explain them. In short, he's going to create an encyclopedia of the Talmud and the commentaries, and he's going to organize it to perfection, and he's going to argue his case with tremendous efficiency, almost inarguably, and he's going to analyze every perspective. So he's going to lay out the landscape of every halacha and then he's going to approach the most important aspect and the objective of his book, the determining of halacha. And he writes that there's a problem because he is going to present the positions of all the Roshonim and he's going to lay them out on either side of the matter well, what then? How do you choose between giants? So he writes, I'm going to develop a new formula based upon the Sanhedrin's principle of adopting the ruling of the majority. And he says, I'm going to take the three pillars of halacha, the Rift, the Rosh, and the Rambam, and whenever two of them agree in any given law, I'm going to follow them, unless the preponderance of other commentaries disagree. If there's no consensus amongst these three, we're going to seek out the rulings of others, namely the Ramban, the Rashba, the Ran, the Mordechai, the Smag, and find the position that they veer towards. Now this astounding undertaking takes many years to complete, and incidentally becomes the first book printed in the printing press in the life of the author. In the life of the author. Today, uh, modern editions of the tour are printed with the Bet Yosef in 22 volumes. Pretty remarkable. But again, if the objective is to make halacha accessible, he achieved it in the Bet Yosef, but the book itself is incredibly comprehensive. Every law begins with him quoting the Talmud and quoting all the opinions and presenting the argumentation and comparing, contrasting, and analyzing, explicating. And at the end, he draws out the halakha. But again, this is the same problem. The halakha is not so accessible because you have to be a great scholar with a lot of time to actually find the halakha from the Bet Yosef. So to make it user-friendly, he composes a synopsis of the Bet Yosef called the Shulchan Aruch, or the set table. And he says here, here's the halacha. It's set before you on the set table. Go, consume, and enjoy. And in that book, he includes just the conclusions of the Bet Yosef, designed to be easily read and memorized, so that every person, young and old, could have halacha on their fingertips. In his introduction to Shulchan he writes that his intention is to divide divide it up into 30 sections, take the whole, all four books, divide it up into 30, so that every Jew, regardless of scholarship, can review it every month, one section per day, and no halacha. As history would have it, on the other side of the globe... In the Polish city of Krakow, another giant, Rabbi Moshe Isolis, was working on the same project to codify Halacha. And he writes in his writings that when he found out, when he got a copy of the Bet Yosef, he was devastated. Because it seems like the Bet Yosef got out the door first. Almost as if like he he worked. He toiled so intensively and someone else reached the finish line before him. But he made a decision that forever changed the history of halacha. And one would argue that he's even more instrumental in assuring that the Shulchan Aruch is universally accepted than its author. He chose, instead of writing a competing Shulchan Aruch, instead of creating a situation where the Jewish people would have two Shulchan arachs, he decides to insert his comments interspersed, interwoven in the Shulchan arach, his positions, and to create a unified Shulchan with the Mechaber, Rabbi Moshe, Rabbi uh, Yosef Cairo, the Shulchan arach, and the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Israelis together. And the reason why he needed to do that is because he had a different methodology of determining halacha. Instead of relying on the big three, he chose to follow the later commentaries. And this is based upon a Talmudic principle that whenever you have two Talmudic rabbis arguing, you follow the position of the later opinion. And the reason for that is because they have access to the earlier opinion and they chose to reject reject it. Nonetheless, obviously, they have insights as to why their new position should triumph. Why would that not apply with determining who the halacha follows when there's an argument amongst the Rishonim? And in his introduction, he criticizes the Bet Yosef and he says, the Bet Yosef, he points to the Rif himself, one of the three pillars upon which the Bet Yosef himself relies on. He rules that the Talmudic law follows later opinion. So if, in Talmudic law, that principle holds. Why would it not hold in determining Roshonic law? And more than anything else, Rabbi Israelis was bothered that the Bet Yosef's conclusions in the Shulchan Aruch sometimes clashed with accepted custom of Ash- Ashkenazic communities, which were primarily based upon the later Ashkenazic rulings, the Arzurua, the Rotenberg, the Mordechai, the rush, the tour. But in his humility and visionary sense of possibilities, he chose not to author his own book of Ashkenazic Law, rather to insert his glosses to the Shulchan Aruch. By doing it in this manner, he ensured that there would be only one Shulchan Aruch for the entire Jewish people to rely upon. Following the tradition of Rabbi Cairo, he, he too wrote his positions in a longer, more detailed fashion known as the Darkim Moshe, which is on the Bet Yosef on the tour, and in a succinct synopsized version on the Shulchan Aruch, which he named the Mapa. Well, if the Shulchan Aruch means a set table, Mapa is the tablecloth laid upon the set table of Rabbi Yosef Cairo. Very quickly, This Shulchan Aruch, together with the comments of the Ramah, became the centerpiece of Jewish law. It codified halacha, and incidentally spawned a new era of halachic words very quickly. An enormous corpus of commentaries are written upon it. In a wonderful, ironic twist, the sheer volume of halachic writing on the Shulchan Aruch itself created the same problem that the Shulchan Aruch was written to fix. There is overwhelming amount of the halachic works in our modern bookcase that there actually have been several modern efforts to codify halacha written since. Similarly to the Rambam's quest to end all books with one but to rule them all, the Shulchan Aruch's one book to rule them all, yeah, learn it all in 30 days and just review it, didn't quite end up the way the author had intended. Nonetheless, I would argue that the greatest achievement of any work in any genre is that it redefines the arena, the discussion, the genre itself. By that barometer, the Shulchan Aruch more than achieved its objective It became the beginning of all subsequent halachic works. Indeed, I would argue that he was successful in collecting all the works of halacha of the Rishonim and writing the authoritative book of those opinions. In the future, more halachic analysis was added on top of that, but it all began with the same point of departure, the Shulchan Aruch. This legacy is a testament to Rabbi Yosef Cairo and Rabbi Moshe Isserlist. These were unmatched visionaries and scholars who helped shape halacha for all future generations. In modern times, Rabbi Avad Yosef, for example, he embarked on a similar effort to try to codify halacha The Mishnah Berurah was written in the beginning of the 20th century by the Chavetz Chaim to do that. uh, That was only one section of of Shulchan Aruch. But again, the Torah is, we're told there's 70 facets to Torah. The Torah is like a stone that you you hit it with a a sledgehammer and shards of it go shooting in every direction. The study of Torah doesn't cease. But the Shulchan Aruch was definitely successful at its objective to create a codified version of Halacha to write down the next stage of the writing of the Oral Torah, but Torah development and Torah learning never stops.